Well, good morning, everyone. We are in a series called Turbulence, How to Fly Above Adversity. How many of you have ever faced adversity in your life at least once? Yes. I'm afraid to ask how many of you are in it today, but I'm guessing that many of you are struggling with adversity. I have, and I know I will. And last weekend, Pastor Brian started us out, and he did a great job reminding us that when you're going through difficult times, practice prayer and what does it mean and how do you practice prayer? Well, this weekend, I want to ask you a question. What happens when prayer doesn't seem to work? What happens when you're going through the thick of it and you're praying and maybe you're fasting and you're seeking God and God doesn't seem to be answering and it's almost like God has his fingers in his ears and he's not listening to you? What happens when you get kind of pushed to the edge, so to speak, in your spiritual journey because of the increased rather than the decreased turbulence. If you've ever been in a situation like that, know someone in a situation like that, I just want to remind you that you're not alone. Some of God's very best servants have been pushed to the edge. And we're going to look at one of them this weekend. And we're going to learn from his life how to deal with our own struggles and challenges. So, in order to unpack his life, I want you to join me. I'm not going to be putting a bunch of slides up this weekend uh, with scriptures because we're going to move through quite a few scriptures. But if you want to use the Bible we provide for you uh, in the pews, you're welcome to pull it out and turn to about page 500, and that'll put you where we are. Or if you have your own Bible or you use the Bible app, look at 1 Kings chapter 16. That's where we'll start, 1 Kings chapter 16. When you get to 1 Kings chapter 16, you will meet a man named Ahab. Ahab was the most evil king of his time. He was the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel. He was more evil, it says in verse 30, than all the other kings that had preceded him. And then we discover in verse 33 that not only was he the most evil king, but God was more angry at him than God had been at any of the other kings that had preceded Ahab. And the question becomes, how was he more evil and why was God so angry with him? And the answer comes in just one little phrase, verse 31. It says, by the way, he also married Jezebel. Let's all say the word Jezebel together. Ready? One, two, three. Jezebel. Just sounds wicked, doesn't it? By the way, if your name's Jezebel, forgive me, all right? But Jezebel, she was the neck that turned the king's head. She was an evil woman. She was a pagan that he had married. And she brought with him into Israel 850 false, godless prophets. Prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah. And all of Israel, Ahab leading the way with Jezebel, went headlong into idolatry. Remember this, when you worship an idol, you're really worshiping a demon because behind the sticks and stones are demonic powers. And so Israel's now worshiping all of these uh, demonic powers. No wonder God was so angry with Ahab. And so God called on a man by the name of Elijah, and we meet him in chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba, that's a tongue twister, huh? Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba 
in Gilead. Let's stop there for a moment. So he's this guy from the eastern, eastern side of the Jordan in a place called Gilead. He's a Tishbite from Tishba. And scholars tell us that the people from that region, we know this from history, were very rugged individuals. So Elijah is not this, you know, kind of slumped, uh, down the mouth, meek kind of guy. He's a tough guy. And, his, and, you know, in our day, he'd probably be riding a Harley, all right? He'd probably have a cut-off T-shirt. He'd have long hair and a bandana on his head, maybe even a couple of tattoos up his arm, all right? He's a really tough guy. And he had to be a tough guy because of the assignment that God was going to give him. And incidentally, the name Elijah means something very important. It means simply, I serve one God or the Lord is my God. That's what the name Elijah means. I serve one God or the Lord is my God. Now that's important because he's about to confront Ahab who's led the people to serve many gods and to call many gods their God. And primarily the God Baal and the God Asherah. Baal had to do with everything agricultural. He had to do uh, with uh, fertility and all kinds of immoral practices, and Asherah was the mother god as well. They would set up these Asherah poles, these statues where they would go and they would worship. And he comes to Ahab, and he says to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, chapter 17, verse 1, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Notice he's saying to him, look, we're going to have a little contest here. God's going to shut the heavens off, the taps off. There's not going to be any rain. And this is going to last for three years. And only at my word, when I call on God, will the rain come back down. And let's find out who the true God is. If Baal's the true God, he'll bypass or he'll overcome Yahweh. He'll, he'll cause it to rain no matter what I say. But if he's not the true God, you'll know by the impending drought who the real God is. So everybody waited to see if there'd be rain or not. And the rain stopped. Days went by and weeks and months and soon years. And there was no water in the land and the people were suffering. The people were dying. And Ahab and Jezebel wanted to squeeze Elijah's neck. They wanted him. They put a bounty out on him. We want Elijah. We want to squeeze him until he finally calls out and we get this rain back. But God takes Elijah in the wilderness and God hides Elijah. He takes them to the Kirith Ravine, to a brook of water that was there. Now the word Kirith in the original language means to cut down. Our English version of that would be to humble. And so God has taken his servant into the wilderness to humble him. To kind of shave him down. And there God provides for Elijah his, his needs. He gives them water from the brook that is running by, and he feeds them every day. Look what it says in verse 6, chapter 17. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, I've oftentimes wondered, where did the bread and the meat come from? And I have this theory. Maybe when I get to heaven, I'll find out if my theory is right or not. I have a theory that what happened is the ravens would fly into the kitchen of Jezebel, steal the meat and the bread, and bring it to Elijah. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the point is, God is teaching him to depend, to depend on God. 
And it's a day-by-day dependence. He can't hoard the food. He can't dam up the brook of water. Every day he has to trust the water will be there, and every day he has to trust the ravens will come. In a material world that we live in, like we live in, it is hard for us to depend on God. It is easy for us to depend upon ourselves, to depend on our income, to depend on our success, on our power, on our talents, on our network, on our friends, on our abilities. Even though all of that comes from God. And even the secular world is benefited by God's uh, grace. It is easy for us to forget where it comes from. And sometimes God allows us to go through turbulence to remind us that we need to depend on him as our source. And the hardest thing for us to do, hard for me to do, is to depend on God one day at a time. That is really hard, especially as Westerners. We like to have 10, 20 years planned out. We like to have reserves for the future. Hard for us to depend on God one day at a time. But that's what ultimately we have to do. (sighs) Depend on him for one breath at a time. Well, one day the brook dried up. There was no water there. I don't know about you, but I'd be tempted to panic if the brook dried up and the ravens didn't show up. But not Elijah. His faith muscle is getting bigger and stronger. And he knows that just as God led him into the wilderness and provided, God's going to lead him to the next step, and God does. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. I love that. You see, in Elijah's life, the word of the Lord comes to him over and over again. God wants to bring a word to you every day, every day. That's why you need to have your Bibles open. That's why you need to read and have your quiet time. God has something to say to you every single day. God wants to speak to you. And God said to him, I want you to go to a place called Zarephath. Now, the word Zarephath means crucible. So poor Elijah, he's going from being cut down, now the crucible. It's like being, you know, into the frying pan, so to speak. You just get the sense that God is shaping him for something. And so often as his followers, when we are going through turbulence in our lives, God has a purpose that turbulence is not wasted turbulence. God is shaping you and shaping me for something, though it's hard for us to understand, excuse me, in the moment. But he's shaping us for something. That's what he's doing with Elijah in this story. So he arrives in Zarephath, and God says, In verse 9, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. So, ah, just like God said, all right, there she is. So he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Now listen to her response. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
<laughs> Put yourself in the story for a moment. How would you feel if you're Elijah? God, could you spell the name of that place again? Because I think I got it wrong. I, and I think I've got the wrong widow. You sent me here and you said you're going to take care of me? I just showed up and this widow's on her last meal. In fact, she's so depressed, she's convinced that she's going to die. How many of you be a little concerned? I would. But Elijah's faith is growing. He has seen what the word of God can do. And so he calls out this woman. He says, verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first take a small loaf of bread from me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. How many of you are raising teenagers? All right? Wouldn't that be a wonderful, wouldn't that be wonderful if every morning there was more milk in the fridge? And more cereal in the cabinet. For me, it'd be more ice cream in the freezer. You never have to go to Costco again. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what happened. She had plenty of oil. She had plenty of flour. And it lasted until the drought was over. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm on a spiritual high. I mean, my goodness, I just have to say it, and look what's happening. Power of God is upon me. This is amazing. This is a way to live. I love living like this. And then tragedy struck. The son that she has dies. She cries out and he says, is this what you've done, O man of God? Are you taking vengeance on me because of my sins? And Elijah goes in. He's distraught about the situation. He picks up the boy. He takes him upstairs to where he's staying. And he lays him on the bed. He cries out to God, stretches over the boy. And God hears his prayer. It's quite phenomenal. Look at the response in verse 22. It says, the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Come on now, if you're Elijah, how do you feel, huh? Proud, in a good way, proud of God. Strong, victorious. I mean, what, I mean, what else can go wrong? I mean, you have now been used by God to raise the dead. Doesn't get better than this. He graduated from God's school of wilderness. He was now ready to take on Ahab. And God says, it's time to go meet Ahab. Three years passed. Go look for him. And he runs into this guy named Obadiah who works for Ahab, who, by the way, Obadiah was a man of God. He has secretly hidden 100 prophets, 50 in one cave, 50 in another, fed them, watered them, while all the while working for Ahab, whose wife was trying to kill all of the prophets of God. Elijah tells Obadiah, who's the palace administrator, go find Ahab and tell him to meet me. Ahab shows up. I've got to skip a bunch of verses. You can read them later. But in chapter 18, verse 19, Elijah and Ahab have a conversation. <clears throat> and Elijah says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now I've been on Mount Carmel many times in Israel. Maybe some of you have as well. It's a large, broad mountain. 
So you can imagine hundreds and hundreds of people have come from various towns in northern Israel where they are starving to death, where they're barely making it. And they're tired and they're exhausted and they want to hear what the man of God has to say. And all these prophets show up and Ahab shows up and Elijah says, we're going to find out who the true God is. You guys make an altar, you cut up a bull, you place it on the altar and you call out to Baal, your false god, and ask him to consume it with fire. And if he does, then Baal is God. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to build an altar, I'm going to put a bull that I cut up on top of it, and I'm going to call out to Yahweh, the true and living God, and I'm going to ask him to consume the sacrifice with a fire, and if he does, he is God. And all of Israel said, agreed, because they're desperate. Sure, let's do it. Let's find out who the true God is. So the Canaanites make their little altar. They cut the bull up. They place it on the altar. They begin to pray to Baal, come and consume the sacrifice, and nothing happens. And so they work themselves up in a frenzy. They begin to chant and to cut themselves like people still do in some cultures. They work into a demonic kind of trance, begging, begging this false god to consume this sacrifice, begging the demons to do something, and nothing happens. And Elijah, he gets kind of sarcastic. You have to read the passage. He taunts them. He says, where is your God? Is he on vacation? Is he taking a nap? Is he indisposed on the toilet? I mean, literally, that's what, the, what it means in the Hebrew. So you know, I gotta read this. <laughs> Nothing happens. Elijah takes and repairs the altar of God, cuts up the bull and places it on the altar, and he calls out to God. And we have we have his prayer right here in chapter eighteen, verse thirty-six. It says, "At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, J- and Israel." Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water because he had poured water all over so nobody could say anything, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yay! It's a high spiritual moment that Elijah must have felt to himself, This is it. We're going to have a spiritual revival. The people are going to repent from their sins and they are finally going to turn back to God. The culmination of everything that Elijah had been prepared for. And Elijah takes the 850 prophets down by the brook of Kishon and there, there they are slain. And then he tells Ahab, you better head back across the valley of Jezreel to your palace Because rain's coming, it's going to flood the place, and you don't want to get your chariot stuck. Elijah goes, and he sits there on Mount Carmel, and he begins to pray for God to send the rain. Remember, it won't happen unless it's at my word. So now he's calling on God, and he says to his servant, see any rain clouds yet? servant says, none. He does this six times, six times, nothing in the sky. On the seventh time, he says, is there anything? And the guy says, I see a cloud about the size of a man's fist. And Elijah knows that rain is coming. And man, did it come in torrents. 
He takes his tunic, he sticks it in his belt, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he outran Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel. Elijah wants to see what's going to happen. He wants to see Ahab repent and Jezebel repent and all of the northern tribes of Israel repent. He wants to see revival in the land. And when he gets there, watch what happens. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, you are a dead man. In 24 hours, I'm going to hunt you down like I've done all the prophets, and you're going to die. Now how do you expect Elijah to respond to that? I know how I expect him to respond. I mean, here's a guy that God fed him meat and bread and water in the wilderness, a guy who spoke and the oil didn't run out and the flour didn't run out, a guy who prays and raises a boy from the dead. God did, but it was through Elijah. Here's a guy that calls down lightning from the sky from the sky, fire from God to consume the sacrifice. Here's a guy that outruns a chariot who calls down rain. He should be afraid of nothing and nobody. I expect him to say, woman, I'm not afraid of you. Bring it. God is on my side. But instead, look what it says in verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Elijah, the courageous prophet of God, has now become Elijah, the coward. And he's running for his life. Why? Let's keep reading. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a place where you just wanted to quit God? just wanted to resign from Christianity. You're just fed up spiritually. You've prayed all the prayers. You've fasted. You've given. You've served. I mean, you've done everything. It's like God doesn't even exist. And you just want to quit. You just want to give up. If you haven't been there, you will be. Because God's best get there sometimes. What's happened to Elijah? Why, why is he in this place? You know, they say that um, most people who climb Mount Everest don't die on the way up. They die on the way down. Because on the way up, they're focused on summoning. They trade for it. That's all they can think about. They're being as careful as possible because they want to get to the top had that rare experience that few people have ever had. Tallest mountain in the world. Highest mountain in the world. But after they get there, they spend all their adrenaline, and on the way down, they're weak. 
They're tired. They're careless. They're exhausted. One wrong move, one wrong calculation, they slip and they die, and Everest is littered with dead bodies. Sometimes we just get exhausted from life. And it's in that exhaustion that we lose our confidence, we lose our focus. And we want to give up and we want to quit. What does God do with us in those moments? I love what God does with Elijah. Remember, he crashes under the broom bush after he says, I resign. He says, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, drank, and then laid down again. I think sometimes God just looks at us and watches us and just goes, well, let him spend herself until she's just kind of spent herself, and then maybe she'll finally crash and relax. Sometimes the best news is for us to take a nap. Not in church, but a little nap. You see, as long as we're pushing relentlessly, we, get, we have so much noise going on, we can't, you know, even in serving God, we can't hear God. And sometimes God just has to wait until we've spent all of our energy, and then, and then he gets our attention. God wakes him up again. It says, verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you because you're going to go meet God. So he feeds him a superfood, I guess, because he goes 40 more days into the wilderness, up Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and into a cave. And God speaks to him there. It says the word of the Lord came to him at the end of verse 9. What do you expect God's going to say to him? God asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think it was sarcastic. I don't think it was asked in a scolding, angry kind of way. I think it was just a very gentle, simple, honest question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Talk to me. And he replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now we find out what happened on the summit. See, the reason Elijah is so exhausted is because of his expectations. And his expectation was that he would do all these things for God, it's always a problem when you do something for God. He's going to do all these things for God, by God, and he expected everything to change. Everybody to repent, revival to break out, and, and everything go in, in a good way, in a positive way. That's his expectation. But the truth is it doesn't happen. Keep reading First Kings. People go right back to idolatry. Their spiritual high was very momentarily. And now... The woman wants to kill him. <laughs> How many of you ever run a marathon? Miss your hands. Crazy, crazy people. I mean that as a compliment. It's just amazing you can do that. I want you to imagine that all of us are training for a marathon. Now, we're only going to imagine it, so it shouldn't exhaust you today, okay? But you and I, we've been training for months for the marathon. We've been pacing ourselves, eating the right diet, doing all the right exercises. 
is the day of the marathon. We get out there, we're running, and man, we're feeling good. And we get to mile 25, and we're thinking to ourselves, I am actually going to finish the marathon. I only have one more mile to go. I can do this. And there are officials at mile 25, and they inform us that the rules have changed, and the marathon is now 40 miles, not 26 miles. How do you feel? Don't you feel like sitting down next to the broom bush and saying, I quit? Don't you feel kind of angry at the officials now and upset for changing the rules? You had trained. This was your expectation. That's sometimes what happens to us in our journey with God. It feels like God moves the finish line. It feels like God changes the rules. My mom passed away. Uh, last fall, and my dad is still struggling. And my dad is a man steeped in the scriptures, and he's been a missionary. I mean, he knows so much, and yet his expectation is that my mom would not pass in the manner that she did. And he's had a terrible time dealing with that. He's been angry with God because in his mind, God changed the rules. We were faithful we gave, we served, we prayed, we sacrificed. Why do you let that happen? Does it feel like God's changed the rules on you? Does life not seem so fair? Have expectations changed? Then God does something really strange. He says to Elijah in the passage, he says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. So he goes out there near the entrance of the cave, and it says that a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. God produced it, but he wasn't in it. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. He caused it, but he wasn't in it. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. He caused it, but he wasn't in it. And after the fire, shh, came a gentle whisper. What's that all about? I think it's God saying to Elijah, man, through me and by me, you did a lot of amazing, powerful things. But I, I'm not those amazing, powerful things. I cause them. You're focused on what I cause. I need you to focus on who I am. Because you can't live that way. You got to focus on who I am. So he calls him out. And Elijah covers his face and he comes out. And God speaks to him. And if you've ever wondered what God whispered, here's what I think he whispered to him. What are you doing? What are you doing here, Elijah? And the story just kind of ends right there. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like stories that end with a question. And, of course, Elijah tells him what he's doing out there. We've heard it all before. I'm the only one left. I've been zealous. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. And when he gets done with his complaint towards God, and he says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me, verse 14, God just simply tells him to go back to work. Doesn't give him any grand answer other than, what are you doing here? Now go back to work. 
And oh, by the way, I love this, verse 18. Oh, by the way, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You are not alone. In other words, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. See, what are you supposed to learn from all of that? What am I supposed to gather from that in my own turbulence? That God's asked me a question, what am I doing here? Yes. And here are the two lessons I'll leave you with. Number one, the battle belongs to God, not to you. David said that when he went against, when he went out to fight Goliath. The battle belongs to the Lord. So I don't know what turbulence you're facing right now in your life, financial, physical, emotional, relational, whatever it is. But have you made it your battle? Because that's what I think Elijah did. Somewhere along the line, he made it his battle. It was about him being victorious. It was about him kind of proving God. And God's intention was never that. God's intention was simply to show everybody who the true and living God was, regardless of whether they repented or not. Your battle is not your battle. If you're a child of God, your battle is not your battle. It is God's battle. And even if it's a battle you created by a bad choice or by a sinful decision that you made, listen, if you confess that, he's, he's there to forgive that, and he can even take the bad and turn it into good. But you and I have got to have, we've got to hand over the battle to God. Stop hanging on to whatever it is and let God hang on to you. Secondly, as I read the story, the other lesson that comes to me is that God always provides enough for us in the turbulence of our life, in the difficulties of our life. He always provides enough for us to be faithful to him. Now think about that. In a material culture, the way a lot of things are preached or written these days, we think more about what is God going to provide for me that's going to make my life more comfortable? What's God going to provide for me that's going to make me more financially stable, make me healthier, make me happier? And while God sometimes does those things, ultimately, ultimately what God provides for us is what we need to be faithful to him. 